It's funny, my master's athletes, like 50 plus, are some of my most active athletes off the bike. And it's so hard to get them to recover and do nothing because, um, you know, they're they're doing social things. So, like, my one athlete does a a hike slash, um, like, trail run with her friends weekly. Um, And I know your athletes are doing pickleball. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast, powered by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Sabin. We've got a fun episode for you all this week. Since Drew and Dylan couldn't make the recording, we brought in the second half of Ignition Coach Co.'s power couple, Blaine Maddox. We offer insight on preparing for your first ultra, how to train for high elevation and hilly races without access to either from home, differences in training approaches for master's athletes, and a couple rapid-fire questions from Instagram at the end. Today's show is also brought to you by Flow Formulas. It's Leadville week, and you better believe that my race day fueling strategy is going to have heaps of flow formulas included. I'll personally be relying on over 90 grams of carbs an hour from Flow's high-carb drink mixes, both caffeinated and decaffeinated, as well as their new gel mix. If you are interested in leveling up your race day fueling, head over to flowformulas.com today and use the discount code IgnitionPodcast10 for 10% off your first order. As always, if you like what you hear, please share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. And if you have any questions for the show, drop us an email at matchboxpod at gmail.com with email title, The Matchbox Podcast, or head over to Ignition Coach Co. and fill out the Matchbox Podcast listener question form. All right, let's get into it. Okay, so this first question this week is comes from Sean. He says, hi, Matchbox crew. I've been cycling properly for around two years, mainly by myself, only on the road, and have entered myself into my first ever event. A 720 kilometer, which is translates to 447 mile, 10,000 meter or 33,000 feet multi-day Whoa. bike packing race. Man, Sean's just jumping into the deep end. Uh, clock stops when you finish the, finish the race. It was originally more of a gravel style race, but their recommendations now are for an XC bike, which I bought just for this race. Since a large share of the race is off road, do you have any training tips? I live in a hilly enough area at home, but there are but they are short and steep, so I have been hitting the hillier sections more often. I was planning to cycle to the race from Chamonix, France, uh, to Bassana del Grappa, just north of Venice. Uh, it's a 550-kilometer commute, but sadly I suffered a bad saddle sore and had to get surgery. But maybe this could be good advice for next year if I can't make it. Uh, also, I got the also the bike I got was a Oh, it just tells us what his bike was. Um, okay. So he's got a a, full suspension. Uh, I'd have to look it up. It's a radon jealous aluminum or AL nine. Okay. I haven't heard of that. I was just asking for how the, the bags would be set up for the, the bike packing. Mm, Yeah. That's a good question. Cause 'cause Uh, my first, I can, I can look up the bike real quick. Yeah. My first thought goes to like training is important, but almost in an event like that, that's so long. It's your, your bike setup and being able to handle the bike is probably just as important, if not more important than, you know, kind of what your training looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks like it's a, it's aluminum hardtail with a pretty good mm, okay. component spec on it. Yeah. Seems like a good setup for bike packing then. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's, let's kind of break this down. So, so Sean's been cycling for two years and then he's jumping into a multi-day bike packing race, which at first, like at first you're thinking like, wow, that's crazy to like jump into a 500 or 720 kilometer race 
when you think about it, it's actually like the way these bike packing races play out usually is like, it's more like swift riding for multi-days at a time. You know, it's like you're, you're racing, but you're not racing at breakneck speeds for, for this duration. It's not like we're talking about Tour de France speeds or efforts or anything like that. Like there's a lot of pacing involved. Like you were talking about like equipment's like super key for a race like this. So it actually, I mean, it, it, it's actually not that uncommon to see someone kind of newer to cycling jump into a race like this. Um, you get a lot of bang for your buck. You know, you sign up for a race and you get to race for, you know, 720 kilometers. That's pretty awesome. You get to see a lot of terrain. Um, but, it, but there's a lot of experience that needs to go into an event like this as well. You can't just sign up for it on a whim and, and show up. Like you've got to be prepared with your equipment and what your plan is for nutrition and how you're going to sleep and, uh, you know, all the other aspects that go into it beyond just normally, you know, start line to finish line of a shorter distance race. So let's, let's break this down. So Sean, you know, he first asks, you know, how does he train for such a hilly event? He's, he has some hills near him, but he says it's, you know, shorter, steeper hills. So he's been hitting those hillier sections more often. What do you guys think about that as far as like coaching athletes who are preparing for an event that has a ton of elevation gain? Let's, let's talk, you know, the discrepancy here is, you know, long climbs versus what he has at home, which is shorter climbs. How do you guys typically approach someone's training when, when they have that discrepancy in terrain? I mean, it's important to understand that it's going to feel different muscularly, but at the same time, you know, your power is your power regardless. So as long as you're getting extended time in the same power that you would sustain up those climbs, you're going to be prepared to some degree. Um, but of course, getting, you know, doing a training camp or getting to somewhere where you can really feel what that's going to feel like at race speed, that's super important too. Mm-hmm. Um, and just race speed, I think race weight also, getting the bike set up and loading it down, even if it's just, you know, some like dummy weights getting, you know, 20 or 30 pounds on the bike and going out and climbing something that's eight, 10% is going to feel a lot different than, mm-hmm. you know, just your, your straight up bike, you know, how does it handle under you? You know, do you have to position your body different traction on off-road stuff? Um, you know, a lot of those things I think are super important because you're, you're working different than if you were just, you know, going to sit on the trainer and do a 30 minute effort, which would be the best way to prepare for long climbs. If you don't have long climbs, in my opinion, would just to be, you know, jump on the trainer, hit the power numbers. But in this instance, you know, you're riding something that's, you know, so drastically different that you have to kind of do both. Yeah. And, and one thing that I, uh, yeah, I think gets overlooked is the position on the bike. So when you're riding flats versus climbs, like the the position or angle of the bike changes how how you pedal the bike and how you how you situate yourself on the bike. So I think that's one thing that gets overlooked a little bit when preparing for longer races like this that have longer climbs is how much time you're going to be spending in that climbing position and is your bike set up appropriately for that? Cuz what your where your saddle is and how your saddle is going to be oriented when you're riding flats is a lot different than how it's oriented when you're going uphill. And when you're talking, you know, he's covering multi days, 720 Ks, 33,000 feet of climbing. Like that's a ton of time to be spending in that position. So that's, that's one thing too. So like Blaine, like you were talking about, like hopping on the trainer, maybe hop on the trainer and put a few textbooks underneath your front wheel to like kind of simulate what that five Mm -hmm. to 8% grade might feel like. And that might tell you, okay, do you need to adjust your saddle a little bit uh, you know, whether it's the angle of the saddle or the height of the saddle or fore and after the saddle, uh, just to make sure that the bike feels comfortable for those longer climbs. 
because when it, when you're descending, it's not as big of a deal. And then, you know, a race like this with this much climbing, you're not going to, I mean, you'll spend a, a fair bit of time on flats, I'm sure, but you're going to spend more of your cumulative like time on these climbs. You want to make sure your bike's really comfortable on these climbs as well. Yeah. So it would be a good time for him to do a bike fit as well and like get a proper bike fit at least a few months, at least before his event. So he can kind of get used to that new setup. Yeah. And then the second part is that he mentions that two thirds of the race is off road. So that's assumingly why he's going with the, the hardtail here for this. Um, when you guys have, have athletes that are training for specific off road events, do you have them train on similar terrain as far as like, you know, if it's gravel, if it's a gravel race, you send them out on gravel. If it's a mountain bike race, you send them out on the mountain bike and so on. Or do you just mostly focus on hitting the power metrics? I would say it's pretty 50, 50. I would say for my athletes, I kind of, uh, tailor it, um, as we get closer to the race. So if we're a couple months out, we're focusing more on training zone two, maybe tempo or sweet spot, whatever kind of event they have coming. And as we get closer, I'll prescribe more time on the mountain bike or the gravel bike or whatever it is, dialing in the, uh, the skills, because while it is good to ride the mountain bike a lot, if that's what you're trying to do, it's a lot harder to get good quality structure training on single track or, or whatever it may be. Um, so I usually try to save that to closer to the event and kind of get more specific. Um, but if they're worried about position and stuff, then I'll have them put their mountain bike on the trainer or ride the mountain bike just on the road or, or gravel climbs just to get used to that position because a fit can be different than other bikes. Um, but I think that, you know, as you get closer to your event, you definitely want to be doing more time on the race bike, you know, at the kind of race type intensity and efforts and terrain. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that. You know, further off in the race, you're focused more on fitness profile, but then yeah, closer to the race. And, and for me, like if we can, like if I have a, if I have an athlete who's training for a big event and there's not a lot of other events in, you know, in the two months leading up to it, like you said, like I'll, I'll have them train almost exclusively on that bike they're planning on racing on. And if it's mountain bike, but we have intervals to keep doing, usually I'll have them just go do the intervals on the road or on the gravel and then hit some single track trails afterwards. Mm-hmm. So we can get the quality in, but you still get that time on the single track and you're, you're, you're getting really comfortable with that bike that you're going to be spending the entirety of your race on, which I think is really important. Cause like you said, there's little nuances in how the bike feels and fits, especially if you're going from one platform, like a gravel bike to a mountain bike. But even like for me switching between, you know, two different mountain bikes, they could be set up identical, but if, but something's going to feel a little bit different. One's got, you know, full suspension, one's hardtail, you know, one's got 2.4 tires and, you know, 120 travel ones, you know, only got hundred mil travel, you know, so like th- there's, there's little nuances that, that feel different, even if you're comparing, you know, similar bikes. So I, I agree. I think it's really important and it's just, it's good to, to get a sense for what those efforts will feel like on that terrain. So it may not be single track necessarily, but if you can find like, you know, fire roads to do your intervals on. So you get a sense for like, okay, you're, you're doing threshold power, but it's a little bit bumpy. What does that feel like? Um, you know, are you doing threshold on a climb? Maybe it's not single track climb. It's a fire road climb, but what does it feel like to do threshold on an incline versus doing threshold on flats? Um, as much as we can, it depends on what the, you know, terrain they have available, but, uh, yeah, trying to get as close, you know, simulation to that race event in the, the scenario that you'll be in for, for the race, I think is important. Um, and, and they said, you know, Sean says that two thirds is off road. So that means a third's on pavement too. So it's probably not a bad idea to make sure 
the bike feels good and you, you know, you know how it handles on pavement too. you know, hit some paved ascents fully loaded. So you, you know, does the bike have speed wobbles above 30 miles an hour, or, you know, 50 K an hour? Uh, you know, how does the bike handle when you're, you know, breaking through corners on pavement because, you know, the fork's going to sag a little bit more when you're under load, you know, so, so make sure you get used to that too, because you want that pavement time to be your chance to recover from all these off-road sectors. Uh, but if you're not comfortable with how the bike feels on pavement, that could be concerning as well. So, uh, I think it's important to include some, some paved riding in, into your training too. Uh, yeah, sounds like, unfortunately, I don't, I don't, I don't know if Sean is going to even get to do the race. So what I would say to that, Sean is sounds like you had to get surgery. So you're coming back from surgery. I wouldn't rush into it. If you, if you don't have to, if, if you need some more time to recover from that surgery, I would say, you know, take the time you need to fully rehab and maybe sign up for the race next year or find another race that you can do. Um, but don't, don't get too disappointed or, you know, uh, upset that you can't do it this year. If the race is going to happen next year, sign up for next year and it'll be one more year, you know, further prepared. Uh, and you can use some of the advice that we're talking about here to, you know, further your preparation, uh, for next year. Anything else you guys have to add? Good luck. Let us know how it goes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Okay. So this next one comes from Chris. He says, hello, one of my high priority XC races occurs September 23rd, which is in the middle of cyclocross season, which is equally as important to me as my XC races. The event is Ring of Fire here in Bend, Oregon. The race is 53 miles with 5,500 feet of climbing. My question is, how should I balance preparing for cross season while also training for this more endurance-based event? Thanks, Chris. Those are pretty drastically different races. Yeah. I'm thinking XC race, like 90 minutes, and then you hit us with the 50 mile. I was like, oh, man, that's yeah. a that's Yeah, a so for, for context for everyone, yeah. So, you know, cyclocross, you're looking at anywhere from, say, 40 to 60 minutes. And, you know, near threshold or, you know, max heart rate uh, style effort where you, you're just maxed out from the beginning. Uh, and then a 53-mile mountain bike race, probably going to take anywhere from four to f- six hours, depending on fitness level. Uh, and and the, the yeah, you know how demanding the train is, I guess. So, you, yeah, you're talking a huge span, you know, less than an hour to over four hours. Now, what I will say is the good thing is with mountain biking, at least the efforts typically even even though it's an endurance mountain bike event like it's still gonna be pretty stochastic like you have to cover 5500 feet of climbing and technical terrain and you're gonna be on single track so like there's gonna be a lot of efforts that are gonna be over threshold so that as far as like the intensity goes i would say you could probably train the intensity more specific to cyclocross and just kind of use whatever high-end fitness you have as your preparation for what is it called ring of fire um but you will need to hit to make sure you're topping off on endurance. And that's going to be the important part here. And that's going to be the hardest thing I would say to balance with within a cyclocross season. I'm assuming that all of your cyclocross races are going to be on the weekend. So, you know, this is September 23rd. So you might have three or four cyclocross races over the weekends leading up to this race. So that doesn't leave a ton of time for getting in big base miles, you know, or, or you know, zone two rides. So what do you guys have to say as far as how, uh, how Chris can can continue to maintain his you know endurance throughout the you know beginning of the cyclocross season. Well, cyclocross nationals is usually in January. Is that I think that's typical. So that would be like kind of near the end of the season. So I, w- yep. I would think September, and I'm not a cross racer, so I have to put that out there. But I would think September is kind of maybe the beginning of your cross season. So you can use the summer and fall 
you know, as that base period, which I think a lot of cyclocross racers do. And you can kind of have that longer endurance base fitness coming into this race and maybe make this like your last long event. And then going from there, you're, you're shifting your focus to the shorter efforts to get ready for cross. If that's how your season looks, you know, if, if you're targeting nationals or something along the lines of that, that is still like three or four months away, I think focusing more on the longer style efforts, you know, leading up to September is not going to hurt your cross season if that's your focus. But if, if in the Oregon scene, cyclocross is earlier in the year and that's your focus, then maybe that's when things would have to, to change a little bit and it would get a little more complicated. Um, so I think it just kind of depends on where else are your, your A races in relation to, to this race. Yeah. How about you, Kaylin? Yeah. I don't want to assume that, um, he's not going to have a ton of racing, um, before the mountain bike event, but, um, yeah, kind of like Blaine was saying, I don't think, um, you know, not being a hundred percent there for the higher intensity effort is going to kill him later on in the cross season. Um, so as long as he's getting time on the mountain bike during the week, if he does have those X or the, um, cross races on the weekend, another, another thing if you know, he has the majority of time to ride on the weekend and he's only doing a cross race and, uh, you know, ride, if you have the opportunity, ride to and from the race or while you're there, you know, recover quickly and then go for up to two hours endurance after. And that will be a huge day on the bike and hugely beneficial for the race. Yeah, that that was actually that's what one of my tips was going to be is, you know, maybe these early season cross races, like a, a big part of cyclocross is the community and like the camaraderie at the event. And like it's it's really easy to get just caught up in being there all day, but then you're only riding your bike for an hour, you know, so you're, you're sacrificing a whole day's worth of, of time dedicated to cycling, but you're only getting an hour or so, or maybe an hour and a half with warm up and cool down of actual bike riding. So in the grand scheme of things, it can be difficult. Like we're, you know, I'm talking like we're talking about to, to get the volume in that you need to sustain the, the endurance that you need for this ring of fire event. So one way to, yeah, to, to kind of get, get around that is I would say it's probably going to be better to ride to the race, uh, for two reasons. One, then you get to like finish the race and socialize afterwards and you don't have to worry about like, you know, cool, cooling down and then going out for a two hour ride and missing out on a lot of the, uh, you know, the socializing and, and just that camaraderie aspect of, of racing cyclocross, but two, like to, to induce a little bit more fatigue, and to make the, the cyclocross race a little bit more specific to training preparation for Ring of Fire, if you come in with two hours of endurance before you hit that cyclocross race, that cyclocross effort, it might not be quite as high or as hard as you could go if you were fresh, but it's going to be a little bit more aligned with the effort that you would expect to be able to put out for Ring of Fire. So it's going to help kind of simulate that effort a little bit. Um, normally, I would say, like, don't do that because you want to get the most out of yourself for for those higher intensity efforts. But in this case here, like we're, we're just trying to get as much volume in as we can on top of these races. I think that would be the better option. Um, plus sometimes like you surprise yourself, you get a two hour warm up in and you're like really opened up and loose. And you, you know, sometimes you have like some of your best efforts after, you know, having a little bit of fatigue in your legs. Um, That's another funny. You thing changed, too, you changed my mind. That? I was, yeah. I said, that's funny. You changed my mind too, because I was going to attack it from the, the opposite way and say like you, a lot of times in these 
exceed longer mountain bike races, you go out too hard and then you just have to suffer through the rest. So if he did the XC or the, I keep saying XC, if he did the cross race first and then has to do another two to three hours after that, um, I think that would also simulate the race, but I don't know. Yeah. I think I like your strategy a little the, bit better. We're also, yeah, that, then, then we're condoning bad habits though. We, we want to break that <laughs> yeah. habit of going out too hard yeah. and, and crashing and burning halfway through. Um, another thing too is what I would add is a lot of people sign up for two or three cyclocross races in a day where mm-hmm. you know, maybe you're doing the single speed and then you're doing the cat one, two, three, and then you're doing the cat one, two, three masters. And like, you're getting like multiple races in a day. Um, while that may seem like a good idea to try and increase your volume to prepare for ring of fire, unless the races are back to back to back and you're basically racing for three straight hours, I don't really think it's beneficial to, to do, to structure this way. If you're preparing for, for the ring of fire race, because you're going to end up having a lot of downtime in between those races. Sometimes you have a full race in between, which means you're off the bike for an hour. Um, and it's, it's, even though cumulative, like you might have a fair bit of stress, you're just going to be kind of digging a hole. It's not going to, there's not going to be a ton of quality at the end of the day from that workout. Um, you know, and, and there's going to be a lot of downtime. And I would say you're better off just hitting one race really hard and riding either to or from the race or both, uh, rather than trying to stack in multiple races to get that extra volume in. I'd rather see you get that volume in from zone two riding and then be able to get some quality high intensity in from that race. Um, so that's, that's another piece of advice. Uh, also I would say, make sure you're spending time. We, we kind of talked about this in the last episode, but make sure you're spending time on that mountain bike too. Uh, it's with, when cyclocross comes around, it's really easy to get in the mindset of like just riding your cyclocross bike all the time. You're hitting single track on it. You're hitting gravel pavement, you know, you're doing cyclocross hot laps and stuff. And then you can hop on the mountain bike and sometimes because of the way that you corner on a cyclocross bike and grass particularly is so different than the way you corner on a mountain bike on single track trails. When you hop on that mountain bike, skills are just a little bit weird, you know, they're a little bit off. So make sure you're spending at least once a week on that mountain bike to, you know, to keep that feel for what it's like to corner on a mountain bike at speed on, on single track or, you know, dirt trails. Um, Cause it is, it is a little bit different. Yeah. Anything else? I would- I was just going to say, I wouldn't worry too much as long as you can keep the volume there. Um, you know, the, the anaerobic and higher intensity efforts that you're doing to get ready for cyclocross, they're still going to benefit you in this race. Um, so yeah, I would just prioritize, you know, getting the volume in where you can. Otherwise, sure. keeping the majority of the training geared towards cyclocross, you're still going to be totally fine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like going back to what Blaine said, you know, we're early in the cyclocross season at this point, you know, September is probably the first month of racing for most people. So you want to make sure you're carrying that base training into that, at least up to that point to, in order to sustain your fitness level through the rest of the cross season. A lot of people make the mistake where they'll train a lot in the summertime, then cross season gets there and they're just so focused on cyclocross. They kind of forget about the need for continued base training and by mid-October or late October, when you're, you know, halfway through the season, they're kind of like fading really quick because they don't have that, that aerobic fitness to keep supporting the efforts. And even though these efforts are shorter in duration, you know, we're talking an hour long races, they're still really demanding aerobically. So you have to still maintain a pretty high level of aerobic fitness. So what I usually recommend too, for like my cyclocross specific athletes is make sure you take a, 
break, like halfway through October, where you're taking like two, maybe three weeks off of racing and getting just some quality training in, you know, ton of base miles and, you know, maybe some tempo, some sweet spot stuff just to kind of support that aerobic base uh, and kind of get that aerobic fitness bump to support the rest of the season. uh, So you don't end up, you know, kind of fading as the season goes on. Okay. Next question also comes from another Chris. So don't get confused with with your questions, Chris's. Uh, okay, so Matchbox team. Here's a question to explore and discuss on the Matchbox. How does your coaching team approach coaching slash training plans with your Masters athletes? Do you see a difference between the age groups on what Masters athletes can handle in terms of workouts, volume, time the Masters athlete can handle? I- examples are, you know, 40 to 49 years old, 50 to 59 years old, 60 to 65, 65 plus, etc. Chris. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think it's, you know, I hate to use this as a cop out, but everyone's, everyone's different. So it definitely depends on where they're starting, um, what their goals are, but I would say the most common thing, and this is just for my 60 plus athletes, we're operating on a two week on one week off, not totally off two week on one week deload versus three week on one week off. So that would, I mean, it's mitigating fatigue, prioritizing recovery, and that's when you're going to see the most results in master's athletes. How about you, Blaine? Have you had any experience with coaching master's athletes yet? Yeah, I have um, three athletes that are kind of in that category. And I would say that the biggest difference, um, whereas I'm programming for them versus a younger athlete would be just the time that they have. I think the type of workouts are still the same. It's just a lot of the guys I have now, they're getting up early in the morning. They've got an hour, hour and a half on the trainer and they get it done. Whereas if I had a younger athlete, say somebody in college or something that has more time, I would give them the same workout and then say, when you finish this, let's do 60 minutes at zone two, just to take that to two and a half, maybe three hours, you know, and you would have that a couple times in the week where, you know, the, the master's athletes are, if we're getting 10 or 12 hours and that's like a solid week for them, um, both in time commitment and in training, but on the other side, the younger athletes, that would maybe be a lighter week or even a recovery week, you know, as far as their duration. So I I think that that's the biggest difference that I kind of work with is just the total time and, you know, tacking on more zone two, uh, as far as the workouts are pretty similar. Um, I like what Caitlin said about making the, the rest weeks a little more frequent if they need them. Um, but I think kind of at that point, uh, a lot of the, the master's athletes I have, we, we still stick to the three on one off. Um, cause it seems to work for them. And, uh, and I just have them, you know, I, I give them little tips on how they listen to their body a little bit more than maybe just saying, okay, we're going to just push through this because you can come out of it versus them. It's like, you know, how did this feel or what does this feel like this morning? just different, different little things for them to key into. And, and that'll kind of help me prescribe extra rest or maybe in this week, we only have one type of effort and then it's a little bit more zone two, maybe an extra rest day or something like that. Um, those are the biggest differences that, that I kind of face. Sure. Yeah. I would say my, my approach is, is fairly similar to kind of, you know, a hybrid of what you guys are talking about there. You know, and I, I, one of my coaching philosophies is, to prioritize recovery. Uh, I think most athletes that are, that are uncoached or, you know, self-coached, uh, tend to underappreciate the value of recovery and rest in their, in their training cycle. You know, they think that more is always better 
when sometimes more isn't better. More is actually just driving you deeper and deeper into a hole, and then you're it's harder to climb out of it. And this is ve- this is very um, very much the case with masters athletes, and it's why a lot of masters athletes end up plateauing for years and years on end because they just keep doing the same thing. They're never giving their body the rest and recovery that they need, and they're not structuring their weeks in a way that helps them maximize their efforts, uh, which for masters athletes is, is critical because the efforts, you know, you're, you're not as young, you're not recovering as well. So to get the most out of yourself, you have to prioritize those, those key workouts. So I kind of do, it, it depends on what stage, you know, or, or, you know, period we're in. So if it's more base training and, you know, intensity is kind of lower, but longer efforts, uh, sometimes what I'll do is we'll do three weeks on one week off, but we're maybe only doing five total intensity sessions during those three weeks instead of a traditional like six or seven uh we're you know we're doing each session is you know you're accumulating quite a bit of fatigue because they're they're longer in duration and even though they're lower intensity like you're 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 doing it for cumulative you know more time so you know we're, we're going to decrease the number the frequency of which we're doing those workouts but we're going to try and extend that training period over three weeks so that we can get a little bit more out of yourself before we give you that recovery and then once we transition more into like pretty much threshold and above type workouts, I do usually drop back to two on one week off. And the age group that I typically, like the 40s is where it's kind of like a gray area. If you're above, like if you're in your 50s and above, it's almost always once we get into threshold and higher work, I'm having them do two weeks on, one week off. And it's really not two weeks on and one week off. It's more like two in, let's see, so 21 days. So it's more like 16 days on and five days off. So Monday through Friday is what I usually will use as like their recovery period. And then we get back to training on the weekend of, you know, the the tail end of that recovery week. So it ends up being like more like 16 days on and then five days of recovery. And what that allows us to do is really get quality intensity during those, those two weeks. And then for that rest period, a lot of times, I mean, the, you know, like you're talking about Blaine, like these guys and gals don't have as much time to train which means that they've got a lot of stuff going on in their life. They've got work, they've got families, they've got a house to take care of. They've got, you know, lots of responsibilities. So by giving them a Monday through Friday where it's like, Hey, you don't even have to like really train this week. Like you could, you could more or less take this, this Monday through Friday off, or maybe we're getting like three hours of total training in across these five days. And it's like, you know, recovery ride or, you know, an easy spin outside or, you know, a strength training session or something like that. Um, it helps to just refuel the the fire and, and, and energy store energy levels to to help propel those next 16 days. So it's I just really try to emphasize like, hey, like when we're recovering, like we're recovering. It doesn't mean that I, I'm expecting you to still, you know, low key train. It's like I'd rather you do nothing than overtrain during these five days. Um, so, so that's kind of the approach that I take is, it, again, the 40s, like that's kind of like the gray area. Some, it depends on the level of training and how much time they have available. Typically, the less time they have available, the more I'm going to lean towards actually doing the two weeks on, one week off, because that means their fitness level is a little bit lower. So they can't quite handle as much training load as someone who's got a, who's still carrying a really high level of fitness. So that cumulative fatigue over two weeks might be enough to induce the need for that recovery. So, you know, it, it kind of depends on their fitness level. And like you're saying, Kay, like everyone's a little bit different. Uh, but one thing that I would say that is really important for masters athletes is to remember that strength, can, strength training is really important. So getting into the gym, 
at least once a week, you know, year round if possible. Now there are certain times of this summer, you know, when you're kind of peak race season and we're really trying to get as much fitness and specificity towards those key events that I'll, you know, maybe two or three months worth, I'll cut out strength training or make it optional. But the other nine months, we're trying to get at least once a week in the gym, if not two or three times, depending on what time of year we're in. But it's really important for master's athletes to make sure you're getting some kind of resistance training in or impact training like plyometrics or, or you know, yeah, body weight stuff. Yeah, um, 100%. Yeah. That was going to be something I was going to add to because it's funny. My master's athletes, like 50 plus, are some of my most active athletes off the bike. And it's so hard to get them to recover and do nothing because – um, you know, they're doing, they're doing social things. So like my one athlete does a, a hike slash, um, like trail run with her friends weekly. Um, and I know your athletes are doing pickleball, pickleball and, and, yeah. and like yeah. going to a boot weekly boot camp, which is awesome. So, you know, even though that's like not the best, like when we're trying to also fit in intensity on the bike, it, it's something that I wouldn't want them to change. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't want discourage to, it at all. Um, yeah. Just because maintaining bone density, like if you're not using it, you're you're losing it. So, you know, getting as much yeah. resistance training or, you know, other forms of activity. So you're not just doing this singular planar, you know, workout that's going to cause tension and other issues and mobility issues. You know, adding variety to what you're doing is, is really important. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like something like pickleball where you're, you know maybe improving your agility, you know, or, you know, making sure that your limbs are all, you know, functioning and range of motion is still good. Like, like just, just feeling more active in general and more athletic, I think translates really well to performance on the bike. And that's what I try to tell my athletes is like on our rest days or during rest weeks, or, you know, sometimes I'll just give like a, uh, aerobic conditioning day where it's like, Hey, you can do whatever you want, but like make it aerobic in nature. It's like, it's really good to just get off the bike and do other things because the more athletic we can feel all around, especially for off-road disciplines like gravel and mountain bike, just the, the better you're going to feel on that bike. Um, and, and it's, it's really fun. And like, that's part of our jobs as coaches is to like, say, okay, this is the lifestyle you want. Here's how we're going to make sure that we're also hitting your goals on the bike that are conducive with your lifestyle. So if you love to play pickleball, but you know, we, we need to get training in like, okay, let's, figure out a way that the pickleball somehow aligns with our training. So you can still do that, you know, those the, play those pickleball games. Um, but we're still meeting some of your goals on the bike too, because that's why you hired us is right is to, to help you achieve certain goals on the bike. Um, but we don't want to take away from these other aspects of life that are enjoyable. Yeah. All right. Do you want to do a couple rapid fire questions here? We got, we got some questions from Instagram that came in. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Let's see. So, Quick one here. We kind of already touched on this a little bit, but how do you compensate for the lack of elevation in training when races have a lot of hills? Well, I've got two thoughts. One, Adam, you're you're flying in the day before Leadville, uh, so that's one way to to kind of fake it. You know, altitude isn't real. Just come in the day before. Do they mean elevation like hills, like changing in? I'd say both. Elevation. You know, so like yeah, you know, altitude. You know, so okay. You know, high elevation, and then also uh, the terrain. You know whether it's, you know, long climbs or it just says lots of hills, but, um, you know, assuming the, the, you know, hillier racing terrain. What was your other thought, Blaine? Um, the other thought is just trying to do some like heat training or something. Uh, there, there's some science behind, mm. you know, some heat or sauna, different type of stuff that, 
the stimulus from that can kind of translate to to altitude if if that's what the the question is referring to yeah so yeah so blaine you're you're kind of you're approaching it from more of like a high altitude high elevation yeah high elevation of terrain Mm -hmm. yep yeah and, and funny enough i'm doing both of those i'm getting into Leadville literally as late as possible. Like packet pickup ends, I think at 4 PM, we're going to try to get to Leadville at like three 30, um, get there as late as possible. And then I've also been doing quite a bit of heat training to, to prepare Sweet. as well. We'll see if it works. Yeah. Better work. I don't want to go back again. Yeah. <laughs> Putting a lot into it. I took uh, it what as, about you, Kate? I took it as elevation, like change in, you know, undulating terrain. Um, okay. So for that, I would say, um, you know, we, we did talk about this earlier, but, you know, setting up the trainer, like you said, with a couple of extra textbooks to get the feel of what it's like, uh, what the bike feels like climbing versus just on the flats. Um, and then actually strength training, because it is such a different muscular demand and chances are you're going to be in a lower cadence than you would on the flats. So, um, yeah, making sure you're doing some sort of maintenance, you know, you're doing a heavier block of lifting in the off season and then carrying that through, um, to maintain that, that muscular strength so that it's there when you need it. Um, so like a lot of, um, single leg stability work, um, you know, single leg lunges. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's great. Great advice. Uh, I actually hadn't even thought about the strength training aspect. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, one thing I want to add is if, if the trainer isn't your thing, if you're like midsummer and you're like, Hey, I just can't, sit on the trainer and, you know, knock out two hour rides or three hour rides anymore. Like that's, you know, save that for the winter time. I would say it sounds contradictory, but try to find the flattest route that you can. So that way you're spending the, basically the majority or the, the entirety of the ride pedaling. So the main difference with, with riding climbs versus riding flats is that you don't get a reprieve when you're climbing. Like there's no chance to just coast and maintain that speed. As soon as you stop pedaling, you start going backwards. So the more pedaling you can get used to, the better. So like for me, like when, you know, like I'm training for Leadville, most of my training I'm doing actually like as flat as train as possible. Uh, I don't go out and just smash hill repeats because then you're just climbing for two minutes and descending for a minute and you're really not simulating long climbs at all. So the best way to simulate it and, and even better yet would be if you could go out in the flats into a headwind that's like mm. as close as I can get to to a long climb is like an hour spent into a headwind. Um, so, so that's something to consider is like you want to you want to be conducive to or you want you want to try and simulate the demand of of whatever that race scenario is. So if you've got if you're preparing for Columbine, which is going to be a 90 minute climb, you want to make sure that you can sustain 90 minutes of pedaling, you know, without coasting. So going out and smashing hill repeats isn't going to simulate that. Um, maybe the hill repeats could be useful if you don't want to set your bike on the trainer and you're trying to dial in your position. Uh, but as far as trying to get race specificity, it's going to be like kind of polar opposite of what you're preparing for. Okay. One more. How do you prevent side stitches while racing? Do you guys ever get side stitches when you're racing bikes? No, I've gotten it during running, but not on the bike. Um, Yeah. Occasionally actually had a little bit this past weekend in a, a mountain bike race. And I think that was more of a combination of a little bit of dehydration and uh and some sweat loss stuff you know you things start to twinge a little bit but usually i found if you kind of slow down your breathing and just kind of focus on deeper fuller breaths um you know it'll kind of come back in line and i think that that's probably mostly related to just breathing a little too quickly i don't know if you guys agree with that but if you kind of slow down your breath it it should hopefully 
settle out. As long as you're staying up on your, your hydration and your, and your fueling and stuff, I think that's probably where it's stemming from. Yeah, I do think a side stitch is different than other cramps, like a quad cramp or a hamstring cramp or something like that. Um, I, yeah. I would agree that it's more related to your breathing patterns than anything else. Yeah, so I, I've I've only ever gotten side stitches while running. And usually not even like in races, it's usually just like out for like a like a normal jog. Um but Blaine, for you, like when, when you've gotten the side stitches on the bike, do you find that it's helpful to get out of the saddle to like help with slower breathing or do you sit in, in the saddle? I think I just kinda stayed in the same position and just kinda like focused more on on the breathing. Um I don't think I, I got out of the saddle. I I don't know if that wouldn't have made much of a difference. I didn't think about that. Okay. Yeah. So like change. Yeah. I, could, I, I was just curious if like changing position helps open up the lungs a little bit or anything like that. Um, yeah, no, I just kind of stayed focused where I was and, 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 you know, shifted to the breathing a little bit, um, and got in a little bit more, uh, hydration in that moment and kind of, kind of settled out. Okay. Also a side stitch can be, I mean, it depends on what specifically is the issue, but sometimes it can be like, just, it can feel like a side stitch, but it's like, strong tension in the hip flexor and the hip flexors like are a huge muscle group and um they go from like your pelvis um into your spine so a lot of times it can be high and feel like a side stitch but it's just tension in that hip flexor so if you do have the opportunity to take a second and stretch that out and kind of like do a little self-massage on that area that could help as well definitely yeah Okay. And can you, do you do that while you're riding typically, like just by getting out of the saddle to stretch it out? Or would you, would you recommend like hopping off the bike to do that? Um, yeah, I would say if you're on the road, um, you can kind of stand up and drop one leg and, and stretch it out. But if you're off road, um, I would just pull over a quick sec and again, not really necessarily stand there for like 60 seconds and do a static stretch, but like hold that stretching position for like three deep breaths and do that mm. little self-massage and then get rolling again. And that should should help. Yeah, it's a really good point. Uh, sweet. Well, we're at 45 minutes, so we'll, we'll wrap it here. But this was a good one. Cool. Glad that yeah. you were able to make it on, Blaine. Good to see yeah. you. And we'll we'll see you a couple days up in Leadville. Yeah, man. Looking forward to it. All right. We'll see you guys. Bye. See ya. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to matchboxpod at gmail.com with email title the Matchbox Podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn more about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch you all soon. Let's go! Let's go!